This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. In 2020, nothing mattered to you more than the science of COVID-19. We've talked about all aspects from airborne spread to panic, from the process of grief to the promise of a vaccine. But today, we want to do something a little different. As this challenging year comes to a close, we don't want to look back. Instead, we're looking forward to 2021 and beyond. And we're doing that with the man who has helped us love science for over 50 years, David Suzuki. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and we're going to end the year right with science. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. For almost six decades, he has been revealing the wonders of science from the smallest molecule in the body to the great landscape that is our planet Earth. He started with his own television program back in the 1960s, more on that later, and worked his way up to become the host for the national programs Quirks and Quarks and The Nature of Things. In 1990, he co-founded the David Suzuki Foundation to collaborate with Canadians from all walks of life, including government and business, to conserve our environment and find solutions that will create a sustainable Canada through science-based research, education, and policy work. Needless to say, he has done more than a life's work in helping us to learn about science and our environment. Over that time, he has accumulated some of the highest awards, including the Order of Canada, the UNESCO Kalinga Prize for Science, the United Nations Environment Program Medal, the 2012 Inamori Ethics Prize, the 2009 Right Livelihood Award, and UNEP's Global 500. But there is something many people simply don't know about him. He is also an accomplished researcher. His work has helped to identify a link between our genetics and behavior. And his papers from the 1970s are still being listed as inspiration and citation for research being conducted today. Oh, and he's also a joyful grandfather. And with that, let's get to the discussion with a very simple but important question. Who is David Suzuki? Really? Well, the fact is, if I really want to say who I am in any meaningful way, I was born in Vancouver in 1936. My grandparents had come from Japan to Canada in the early 1900s, between 1902 and 1906. So my mom and dad were born and raised in Vancouver. And when World War II started, even though my mom and dad and I and my sisters were all born in Canada, we were considered enemy aliens and lost all of our possessions and put into camps in the Rocky Mountains for uh, three years during the war. And um, 
after the war, we were expelled from British Columbia. And I ended up growing up in, uh, in Ontario, in the middle of the country. And as a result of the war, I came out absolutely, uh, well, I don't know, psychologically hurt, damaged by being declared an enemy when I was a Canadian, you know, and just because I looked different, um, I was uh, regarded as someone that was a danger to the country. And that sent its scars deep into me. And, uh, you know, for much of my life, I've really reacted very strongly against any indication of discrimination. I uh, went to school in the United States. And um, after I graduated, it was a time when science was exploding because of the Soviet Union launched Sputnik when I was starting my last year in college. And because of Sputnik, then the Americans began to throw all kinds of money into developing science. You know, even though I was a Canadian, if you just said, oh, I like science, they threw money at you. But in 1962, I decided I didn't want to live in America. There were a lot of things in Canada that I preferred. You know, the National Film Board and the CBC, and those are all things that really attracted me to come back to Canada. And so I came back. I had uh, become a scientist by then, and um, I've never regretted coming back. Most people here in Canada do know you as the host of uh, The Nature of Things and earlier on Quirks and Quarks. You actually founded that. Um, but there are a number of us out here who do know that you are, or actually you still are, a fruit fly geneticist. Um, and, and the fact is, is you actually helped find the link between genes and behavior. You, you can't get away from doing that. You wrote the paper in 1974. I loved it. And one of the things that came up in that paper, which sums up the whole reason for being a scientist, and it goes as follows, careful observation can lead to unexpected returns, which are very informative. And the fact is, scientists have tried to share that information for centuries, and you, everyone knows it hasn't been easy, which is why we had over a century the idea of knowledge brokering, now known as science communication. And, you know, you personally have been doing this for over 50 years. So here's the question I really want to find out, because I keep getting asked this myself as a science communicator. What was the impetus for you to start sharing that information that you saw in the lab to the rest of the world? Well, first of all, it was totally, totally self-interested. I came back to Canada to my first job at the University of Alberta in Edmonton in 1962. And uh, I was shocked when I made my uh, application for a grant. Now, the people I graduated uh, with, with a PhD in, from the University of Chicago, the, my peer group that were you know, young professors were getting grants in genetics of the uh, order of sixty to ninety thousand dollars. So I applied to NRC for a grant, and I get one for forty two hundred. And I had a note with it that said, "Normally we give a fresh assistant professor thirty five hundred, but you had a year of postdoc, so we're giving you a bigger grant." And I thought, "What the hell is going on here? Science is important. What's Obviously, Canadians don't value science. And so, you know, it just happened that the University of Alberta had a program called Your University Speaks. And they apparently got people that were professors at U of A and who were good teachers. And 
they'd ask him to give a, a half hour or an hour lecture on their their subject. And so they asked if I would do it. I jumped at the chance. I said, oh, great. I, you know, I'll talk to Albertans about why uh, science is important. I did one show on genetics, and they really loved it. And I ended up doing eight. And when I think back, that was really my first science series. You know, that show was shown on a Sunday morning. I started coming to campus, and people would say, hey, I, I saw your show last week. It was great. And my response was always, what the hell are you doing watching television on a Sunday morning? And that's when I realized, my God, a lot of people must watch TV. And this is a powerful way to, to educate people. And that really was the beginning of my taking television seriously as a, a medium of communication. And it's so fascinating because... Even back then, the whole idea of taking the academic performances that we see and putting them out there into the public is one of the best opportunities that we have to be able to do that knowledge translation, science communication. And yet so few do that, to be honest. I think more and more are. And, and the guy that really got it going was Carl Sagan. Carl was a great astronomer, but he was also a sensational communicator. And through that, he was you know, really, I think, got astronomy up and he did the series Cosmos and he he really was huge in popularizing uh, science, I think. And now a lot of young PhDs are are hot to uh, to get into television. And I think for the wrong reasons, you know, they, they want to carve out a, a career. They want to become celebrities. Back in the 60s, believe me, scientists did not like people like me that were trying to popularize science. And I know Carl got hammered a lot. You know, like he never got elected to the Academy of Sciences in the United States because people really looked down their noses at, at what he was doing in the popular media. And, um, and you know, so the, the, the other part for me that was difficult, first of all, I was Asian, although I never felt that was a, a, a criticism uh, I, it was rare to have someone who was a racialized person on on television, but I was a hippie back when I, I started television. I had hair down to my shoulders. My uh, trademark was a headband, and I had granny glasses. Uh, scientists hated that. Like, if you're going to be talking as a scientist, you got to have a white lab coat. You got to have, you know, short hair and wear a necktie, and I did not do that. Uh, young people loved it. And I think that's why CBC supported it, because my early shows got a big audience among young people. And CBC was already regarded as more of an older person's channel. So uh, anyway, they kept me on. And I'm really grateful to CBC for giving me that, uh, that avenue. And remember, the Nature of Things was already well established when I started. The first Nature of Things show was in 1960. I started as a host of, of The Nature of Things in 1979. So The Nature of Things was a loved, well-established show by the time I went in. It was a half-hour show. It never had a host for most of that time. It was just a show about science topics. But when I took it over, it became a one-hour show from my standpoint. What a gift that was. Thank you, CBC, for 
putting me on, even though I was this funny-looking guy. Your story sounds so familiar. Uh, when I started becoming the science communicator at the university, people always looked down at me. Uh, I was always sort of regarded as being, you know, the the, the flimsy one, the one who's just hitting uh, puff topics just for the sake of making the public love me. It was really tough. And again, the whole idea that, um, you know, I had long hair at the time. I have uh, an Indian background. Uh, my mom is uh, from the Assam province uh, in India. And so all of these things sort of worked against me. And yet people kept saying, you know, it's very similar to what David Suzuki is doing. Um, and, and so you literally sort of develop that benchmark for people like me to come in behind you. And so as much as you are grateful for the people who trusted you, I'm grateful that you actually took that opportunity. And another thing that I'm grateful for is more than just communication or translation, one of the big things that I learned over the last 20 years is that when you have information or science to be able to share, you don't necessarily only share it. You should advocate for it. And the thing is that science advocacy is so humongous when it comes to being able to ensure that the public is not just aware, but they understand how it means to them. My whole show is all about science advocacy by giving you something that's meaningful to you. And for you, that has been part of your life's career. You founded the Scientists for Social Responsibility. You were the honorary director at the Canadian Environmental Defense Fund. Yeah, I mean, you started your own foundation for you so that everybody who's listening understands. What was the spark? What was the nudge that took you from just communicator to defender of science in our country? Oh, I, I've never thought of myself as a defender of science. Uh, when you say science advocacy, I just knew, you know, if you, uh, if you were an alien from another galaxy and you came down and discovered Earth and said, oh, wow, there's life on this planet and studied it and said, wow, there's one species there that, that has a lot of behavior that seems to be intelligent. Uh, how can we learn about this? Well, let's look at what they, the way they communicate. Let's look at their TV shows and their, and their uh, newspapers. And they would very quickly realize, whoa, this species is, is really uh, consumed with politics, with uh, business, with entertainment, with sports. But they never realized from that that science was an important aspect of what they were doing. And this is what I, I tell people. By far the most powerful force shaping our country and the lives of people today is science. Science, when in, uh, applied or uh, used by industry, medicine, and the military, it's a very powerful way of knowing. But I've never thought I was an advocate for science. Um, you know, I've, I've been an advocate for more funding for scientists. I'm, I've been a very strong advocate for better, better uh, science. But there are a lot of areas where science itself has to be looked at and criticized. When genetics was discovered as a science in 1900, they began to say, wow, you know, we can study, uh, we can study rats and we can study chinchillas, and we can study corn, and we're finding these universal characteristics and, oh, the behavior of humans, you know, it's just like another genetic trait. So we've got to keep the, the bad things from 
being perpetuated and we've got to encourage the good traits and the whole history of the way we've treated uh, minority groups had a huge impact from geneticists and so we have to we have to carry the the weight of that responsibility do you then feel that science isn't just simply something that should be out there for everybody, but rather it also has to have some sort of responsibility when it comes to being able to do the best for the people, regardless of um, race, color, creed, or whatever. It has to be a universal belief that we're doing good for humanity if we're doing any kind of science whatsoever. Well, I mean, that that goes without saying, but I mean, the point is that science to me is peering into nature, trying to find how nature does this, uh, you know, and it's like an onion skin. You peel layer upon layer as you probe the the aspect of various parts of nature. And I feel that one of the great characteristics of humans is that we're always curious and that we use the tools to push back the curtains of, of ignorance and reveal these deep secrets. The problem is that when we try to apply that knowledge, that knowledge, you know, it's kind of like an axe. You invent an axe, a metal axe. Well, I mean, you know, what a huge advantage to be able to chop down a tree with an axe rather than trying to painstakingly uh, burn it until it finally falls over. But that axe can be used to kill somebody too. The, uh, the inventor of the axe is not guilty of what the use of that can be, although he or she could warn of what the consequences are. To me, the activity of science is just the the quest for knowledge. The application has to, we have to learn the application of science is fraught with problems because we remain so ignorant. And that is a warning that comes out of it. When Paul Muller, working for Geige, in Switzerland, discovered that DDT kills insects, and it didn't seem to affect vertebrates. Wow, you know, that was great. We, he won a Nobel Prize in 1948. But it was only a few years later, after uh, farmers had been using massive amounts of DDT on their fields, that scientists discovered a process called biomagnification. So you spray at low concentrations, Those molecules are absorbed by microorganisms. They're consumed by bigger organisms. And at each level up the food chain, you concentrate it. So by the time you get to the shell glands of birds or the breasts of women, you've concentrated DDT tens of thousands of times. By the 1960s, breast milk in many North American women was considered too toxic to feed the babies. Scientists couldn't anticipate biomagnification because we didn't even know there was a phenomenon called biomagnification till eagles began to disappear and scientists tracked down the cause. So over and over again, we think, oh, we're so smart. You know, when physicists liberated energy by splitting atoms, one of the things that came out of it were atomic bombs. Scientists didn't know there was a thing called radioactive fallout. That was discovered when bombs are dropped over bikini years later. Scientists didn't know there was an electromagnetic pulse of gamma rays that knock out electrical circuits. Scientists didn't know there was a possibility of nuclear winter or or nuclear fall. All of these things happened after 
the technology was actually uh, used. And, you know, CFCs, CFCs were great. They're big ring molecules with a lot of chlorine and fluorine uh, attached to it. Chlorine is a very reactive element, but for some reason in a CFC molecule, it's not, uh, it's chemically inert. So they're great to put as filler into spray cans, or they're great to put as refrigerants. We began to use CFCs by the millions of pounds. And then we found, oh, because they're chemically inert, they don't react and they don't break down, so they persist. And as they fly or float higher and higher, high in the atmosphere, ultraviolet light from the sun breaks chlorine-free radicals. And chlorine-free radicals scavenge ozone. Now, again, you know, scientists had no idea about what that could do to the ozone layer. And this is what really bothers me today about the application of science. So much is being driven by, what, the military or by corporations. So right away you want to, oh, my God, you know, let's, let's uh, apply this in CRISPR, you know, about CRISPR. And now we can genetically engineer. Oh, that's great. We can not only cure this hereditary disease, we can design organisms according to our blueprint. Wait a minute now. This is a very powerful technology. But are you sure you can insert that one gene? only at the site that you prefer. Are you sure that when you do that, there aren't any repercussions by not having the proper lead-in uh, lead signals before and the, the ending signal? There is still a lot to go, and we should be a lot more humble. We need the science when we're uh, dealing with a crisis, and I must say that the, the response of the scientific community to COVID-19 has been absolutely amazing. I mean, when I started in genetics, it would be inconceivable to do that in the 1960s when I began. You couldn't sequence, sequence a gene then. You know, you couldn't re replicate RNA. I mean, it, it was just, it's been amazing to see what they're, they're doing. And now here we are, 2020. And as you mentioned, we've got the COVID-19 pandemic, and not surprisingly, science has been doing the best that it possibly can to try and answer the questions that we need to be able to figure out how we can minimize spread, minimize deaths. But we also know that there's been a lot of controversy going on in between people who are doing science. But now we have something else on top of that, something that you even haven't gotten to yet. And that is the fact that we're seeing a struggle against ideological, political, and just simply fatigue factors. So we've got disinformation, misinformation, and people who are just simply trying to spread chaos by putting whatever the heck they want on social media. And so from your perspective, because of what you've seen over these last 50 years, how do you feel we should be dealing with these attempts to misinterpret, misrepresent, or just simply discount science altogether, regardless of what it can do to help us? Well, I think this is the, the biggest tragedy for me in my life. I began my career in Edmonton in broadcasting because I believed, I knew that Canadians were very ignorant about science, that the application of science had enormous implications and repercussions for ordinary people. And so the only way to try to manage the impact of applied science was to be scientifically literate so that you could engage in discussion and debate. So I thought I am going to uh, try to 
contribute better information so that the conversations about how we apply science would be richer and more fully developed. And that's what I thought it was doing, was to add to the information for ordinary people to use. And the first thing is to raise the level of scientific literacy. I always felt that our programs, you know, your program, my program would would glisten like jewels and people would go in and select them and savor them. The problem is people watch three and four hours of television at a time. And by the time they turn on the TV, I mean, a lot of people eat their dinners watching TV and they don't talk to each other. They're watching TV and they go on. And when they go to bed at night, they can't remember whether it was David Suzuki's The Nature of Things or or That's Incredible or Housewives of Las Vegas. They can't remember. If it was a little sciency, it must have been Suzuki that said that. So one of the aspects of science broadcasting is we have to teach people to be critical about the source of information, including science information. You know, what I find so shattering is my whole idea was to get the information out as broadly as possible. Well, any kid with a cell phone has now access to more information than human beings ever had in our entire history. I mean, you can go to the American Library of Congress and look at what the books are in there, like vast amounts of information. And so, wow, we should be so much better off in terms of our ability to handle the scientific input on on this particular problem. But it doesn't turn out that way. People scroll through the internet until they find a website or some authority that says exactly what they already believe. So they confirm their own beliefs. They don't have to change their mind. They don't have to go into an argument or consider all the possibilities. They've got an authority that they can go and say, oh yeah, I saw on this website, global warming is a hoax. The Chinese started it. COVID-19 was a hoax started by the Chinese. That is not how science works. My brother-in-law is one of the world's experts on lipids, lipids that are a part of cell membranes. Now, lipids, you know, they, they, if you put fats, fatty stuff, into solution, they will precipitate out by forming a, a membrane, and, and they form spheres. So they're like little cells. And he's been working on that for years and years as a possibility of delivering, delivering chemicals putting chemicals into this lipid membrane and then injecting it into a tumor. And so the idea is the cell membrane would go in, extrude its uh, contents, and then deliver chemicals to the target site rather than to the whole body. turns out some guy in Philadelphia called him five years ago and said, you know, I've been thinking maybe if we stuck RNA, messenger RNA, into these lipid membranes, that that could be delivered straight. Well, guess what's the basis for Moderna and Pfizer's uh, uh, vaccines now? One of the parts of that is what my brother-in-law has been doing for 40 years. He had no idea if this technology would be used as a vaccine. And that's the way science comes about. Somebody is an expert over here. Some guy is an expert over there. That happened to me. The genes for cell division were located in a specific part of the chromosome. But the only way that you could study them 
because they were duplicated, there were many copies of them, would be to get a dominant gene. But if you got a dominant gene that interrupted cell division, it would kill the cell. So that was a dilemma. The only way I could show that there were these clustered duplicate genes controlling cell division was to get a gene that kills. And I was sitting in a pub at a conference in Fort Collins in Colorado, genetics conference, and I was having a beer with a guy who was a, a microbial genetic geneticist. So I was telling him what I was doing in fruit flies. And right, as, right, right away he said, you've got to get a conditional mutant, a mutant that dies under certain conditions, but not others. And I went, oh my God, you're right. A temperature, a temperature sensitive mutation. So at one temperature, it doesn't kill, but at another temperature, it, it's dominant and it kills. My great contributions, and I'm very, very proud of what I've contributed in genetics, came about through the discovery that temperature sensitivity could allow you to, to recover genes that you normally couldn't recover. Science communication has changed significantly since David Suzuki first showed up on television as the host of Your University Speaks. As new formats and platforms were created, they allowed for even greater opportunities to share science with you. David Suzuki has kept up with the times and just recently started his own podcast. The first season will focus on, to no one's surprise, COVID-19. But he's going to highlight something no one else has given much thought in the news and social media. The basic elements of life. And along the way, he's going to be talking with some very familiar names, like Jane Fonda and Neil Young. Each episode is going to take us on a journey to a greater understanding of our world and ourselves. Tell us about your podcast that's coming up and what listeners can expect to gain from you. You know, people are coming to me over and over again saying, what's the one thing? What's the solution to, to climate change? They accept that we've got a problem with climate change. They accept species extinction is a problem, uh, you know, but there are lots of other things like plastic pollution, acidification of the oceans and all kinds of other things. What's the one thing I can do that will really make a difference? People are looking for a magic bullet and there is no magic bullet. But ultimately, our destructiveness, I believe, comes because we don't have the right way of seeing ourselves. The, for 99% of human existence, we understood that we were deeply embedded in and utterly dependent on nature, that nature was the source of all that we needed to survive and to live well. We lived within what's called an ecocentric way of seeing uh, our place in the world. In an ecocentric vision, we are a part of a very complex web of relationships with other animal species, with plants, with air, with water, with soil, with sunlight. All of that is a part of the world that we live in, and we're just a tiny part of it. We benefit from uh, the abundance and generosity of that collective web of life and non-life. And when you look at the world that way, you understand that we have a responsibility if our survival and well-being depends on that web, then we've got a responsibility as we receive from that web to ensure that it can continue uh, as it is or even improve on that. And what's missing today is that sense that we are a part of a bigger system. 
We lack the humility today. We actually think that we're special and different. Our intelligence enables us to escape the constraints that normally hold back any species. We can now see with telescopes way past any biological creature. We can see to the edge of the universe. We can use a microscope and discover a world of living things in a drop of water. No other species can do that. We can create machines that can work without taking a pee break or having to eat 24 hours a day. We, they can lift and push enormous weights. We can create uh, machines that will travel faster than a cheetah or a peregrine falcon or a tuna. Nothing biological can travel as fast as our uh, vehicles. We can go down and live deep underwater. We can drill into mountains. We can create a capsule that will, where we can survive outside the atmosphere. And so, wow, we are really special. We're the center of the action, and everything is there for us. And if you're an environmentalist, everything is there for us, but we got to take better care of it. And as long as we cling to what is called an anthropocentric way of seeing the world, we're just not going to do things the right way. Because the very systems that we've created to, uh, to use for us uh, are themselves based on anthropocentrism. So our legal system is great with laws uh, defining human rights, laws that define property. But where is the right of a bird to live its life as it evolved to live? Where is the, the right of a, of a forest to exist as a community of organisms? Where is the right of a river to flow as it has for tens of millennia? You know, our legal system is just totally based on humans. And everything else is an ancillary to that. Our economic system is... Uh, is again a human construct, and it's based on the philosophy of cancer. It's based on the notion that growth forever is possible. It's not. It's not possible. And yet that's the very very definition of, of progress of, or success of the economy is growth. And, you know, when you flood a valley or when you burn down a forest or when you plow up a prairie, you know, the loss of that, economists call that an externality. The loss is just collateral damage to serve all in the interests of the economy. We bow down before the economy, before nature itself that's sustaining us, but that's what you get through an anthropocentric lens. And so this is a place I've come to in my old age, and I see that there has been such a failure of the environmental movement to change the way that we see our relationship with the rest of creation. And so I thought, in some small way, if we could start that conversation, you know, to, for people to realize what the really fundamental elements of life, earth, air, fire, and water, and, and our relatives, and our spirit, those things are everything. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you because I'm used to talking about thermodynamics. I'm used to talking about microbiology, immunology, psychology. 
even policy. You know, I speak wonk. But when I saw what you were bringing with your podcast, I saw something very different. As you just said, the basic elements, fire, air, water, earth, spirit. I, I mean, I, I admit, I just sat there completely astounded because it brought me back to something that was more basic and yet more expansive than what I've talked about or what I do talk about whenever I'm you know, doing a media interview or hosting a show. For me, I'm almost 50 years old. I still feel like I barely grasp that. I'm curious about how people can start that process by listening to you, listening to the show, and essentially learning through this current pandemic, the platform upon which we can start learning more about ourselves. My great success, if I can call it that, as a communicator of science, is that I avoid the scientific terminology. Scientific terminology is a way of communicating so you don't have to explain things. One word tells you right away, thermodynamics or sustainability even. Scientists understand that. But if you want to communicate that, you cannot use those shorthand ways. You've got to explain it in colloquial language. And that's one thing scientists hated about what I was doing because it seemed to demean it. It's not an accident that we think some things are that are vulgar. Vulgarisation. Vulgarization is the French word for popularizing. But scientists regard it as vulgar. We're diminishing. We're reducing science somehow. But all it is, is not using the wrong terms. That's not often easy, because the, the one scientific term just encapsulates something so much uh, more readily than, uh, but we have to use a lot of words. I think we've got to get back down to some very fundamental things. If we get caught up, you know, talking about how many megatons of carbon are we allowed in the carbon budget before we go over the target of 1.5 and all that, let's just, for most people, it's just not a real part of their world. And so it's it's very, very simple, you know, earth, air, fire, and water. And believe me, most people have either never learned that or they've forgotten. And the huge opportunity for us is that there are still people who cling to an ecocentric way of seeing their place on the planet. And those are indigenous people around the world who are fighting for their land, to retain their culture and their language. They are people whose very identity, whose very meaning and reason why they're on this earth is told to them by their connection with the land. We have this incredible opportunity, it seems to me, to gain the most important lesson from indigenous people, which is, which is that we are a part of this complex web. And when you look at the world that way, how do, how do indigenous people see that and respond to it? How do they think of the COVID-19 crisis? How do they think of, uh, of climate change? We can learn a great deal from that perspective. I know that many of our listeners love to communicate science with their families and friends, uh, even their patrons. I've had restaurant owners thank me for some of the shows that we've done. And believe me, they're not speaking wonk. For me, watching the nature of things, listening to Quirk and Quarks, and I'm sure you remember the Vinyl Cafe with Stuart McLean. It was one of my favorite shows. The key to making sure that people appreciate 
is storytelling. And so as we end this conversation, and also this year, I want to give you the chance to share your beliefs, your thoughts, your values of how we should be learning, not simply through communication and advocacy, but also through storytelling so that we can preserve what we have so that it won't be lost. And it's not just the environment. It's not just cultures. Because right now we're in a pandemic and we're losing lives and there are ways that we can stop it. We just have to be able to figure out how we can communicate, to share, to storytell much better than what we're doing right now. Well, you know, I think of us as a species and I think from the very time that we learned to tame fire, we have sat around fires and we've discussed the, the big questions. We've told stories about how did we get here? Like, why are we here? Where are we going? What's our purpose? You know, those are the big questions that people have pondered since the beginning of human time. So that storytelling is a huge part of not only our companionship, but how we meld together the, the story of uh, who we are. And, it, and those stories encapsulate a great deal of, of thought and, and, and wisdom and, and feeling and love. And uh, all of those things are, are a part of our uh, stories. I found in my experience as a, a public broadcaster that there are two things. The most important thing about the programs that we've, uh, we've done, I think, is that people love to just learn new things. They love it. And so I've always said, if we did a show on the sex life of an oyster, I am sure we could get a great audience. People are curious and they're, they're interested. And that's a fundamental part, I think, of what has been the success of the nature of things. But the other part, of course, is when we tie whatever we're talking about into the lives of the, the people that are, are sharing in the listing of that story. When you can make it somehow relevant or connect in some way to their lives, then immediately, of course, there's a much greater uh, interest. So I think the curiosity and the relevance uh, to daily life is, uh, uh, those are the two things that really uh, should resonate in your, your narratives. That takes us to the end of this special episode, and yes, our shows for 2020. But don't worry, we'll be back in a few weeks to continue the discussion about the science of COVID-19, and more importantly, to answer your questions. Tweet me at JATetro or email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. And also, head over to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's S-A-S-S, and post your question. I'm sure you still have lots of questions about this pandemic, and we'll definitely get to them in 2021. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. Now, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. 
be sure to check out the show notes for more information about David Suzuki and links to not only his podcast, but also his incredible paper. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Happy holidays from all of us. And until next year, stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Sass.